Hello, I'm Maurice Mendoza from Judge Business School, and today I have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Kamal Munir, who is a senior lecturer in strategy at Judge Business School in Cambridge. Dr. Munir's research focuses on technological and institutional change, and today we're here to discuss his work on Polaroid in the 1970s. Dr. Munir, thank you for joining us. In the 1970s, uh, Dr. Munir, Polaroid developed a groundbreaking new innovation in the first fully integrated instant camera and film system called the XS70. Can you recapture why this was such an important innovation at that time? Uh, yes, you're absolutely right that uh, it did catch the imagination of millions uh, in 1972 when it was launched. Both uh, Time and Life magazines featured the camera on their covers, with Fortune magazine calling the production of the SX-70 one of the most remarkable accomplishments uh, in industrial history. And the reason was that um, there, were, there were many aspects to it, but uh, the two that really stand out in this innovation, uh, one had to do with film and the other with the battery in the camera. So Polaroid decided to make the ultimate one-step camera and encapsulated a whole development lab in a small camera which would fit into your coat pocket, which meant millions of molecular processes had to start and stop all by themselves. And then the film would come out with the positive and it would develop in ambient light before your eyes. Now, all those uh, who know even a little bit about photography know that uh, the reason we have dark rooms is because photographic paper cannot be exposed to ambient light. So how was it to be done? That was the big challenge in front of Polaroid. Um, The technology certainly did not exist. They were not even sure if it was scientifically possible. So these guys were pushing not only the boundaries of technology, but also of science uh, in accomplishing this. So coming up with this new SX-70 film was the first um, huge technological challenge that they faced. The second was Polaroid had, the um, market research had shown that users went, ran out of batteries. Let's say when you're taking pictures in the middle of Grand Canyon. Um, there is no way that you can get a fresh set of batteries if, you know, in, unless you have actually brought them with you. Um, So they decided to eliminate this flaw once and for all. Now, how was it to be done? Edwin Land, who was the CEO of Polaroid, came up with this idea that everyone else puts batteries in the body of the camera. Let's put the batteries in the film itself. So this way, every time somebody would replace the film, they would also be replacing the batteries, putting a fresh set of batteries into the camera. So nobody would ever run out of batteries this way. There were, of course, uh, huge technological challenges involved here. Uh, Could I just uh, uh, just interject at this point? Because um, listeners will wonder uh, at the fact that although this was such an amazing, groundbreaking innovation, which offered uh, a product which was clearly going to be superior to anything that had come before, actually caused enormous problems for the company. And you would think a company would, looking at something like this would obviously develop an innovation such as this. Why? Can you explain why the decisions they made in terms of going ahead with this innovation actually proved to be disastrous for the company? Uh, yes. So both the innovations that I have uh, mentioned as aspects of the SX-70 uh, proved to be problematic 
from an organizational perspective. And this was something that was completely unanticipated for Polaroid, which was, if you like, the Apple uh, company uh, in computer company of its time. It was the ultimate blue chip stock. It was considered the most creative company um, on the block in, in America, certainly if not the world. Um, there And they had developed this reputation by coming out with extremely exciting products, you know, which really um, were sort of uh, pushed the boundaries of technology, if you will. Now, but they had never really paid attention to the organizational uh, analogs of these technological changes. So in this case, for example, there was a, they took a straightforward technical decision. We are going to make an integral film. Now, previously, the positive was made by Polaroid and the negative was outsourced to Kodak. So Kodak was a stakeholder. It was part of the production network for Polaroid. Now, if you are to create a completely new type of film, it, it involves a lot of uncertainty because in, with every chemical process, you also need to know whether it can be scaled up. So you need to have a manufacturing facility and you need to have um, experiments in the labs. Now, for Kodak, for, for its part, had never allowed Polaroid into its uh, man negative manufacturing facility. They wouldn't allow anyone in, would they? It wouldn't allow anyone because that was their bread and butter. Kodak was the foremost negative manufacturing company in the whole world. Now, for this, they decided to bring the negative in-house. So rather than outsourcing it to Kodak, which would allow, which would basically involve a lot of interaction between Polaroid and Kodak. Now, that's not how usually outsourcing contracts are structured. This is the kind of thing you can do within one company, but it's extremely difficult to do across uh, firm boundaries. So for that logical reason, Polaroid brought uh, negative manufacturing in-house and decided to uh, develop negatives themselves. Now, economic theory tells us that Kodak should have renegotiated the contract or should have at least tried to renegotiate the contract with Polaroid. They did no such thing. They took immense offense at this um, strategic step that Polaroid had taken. And their attitude was very much, how dare you? Who do you think you are? We are the biggest company and you are the new kid uh, on the block. You dare to take us out you know, of this and uh, we are going to show you. And we are going to launch our own uh, instant film okay, and camera system on the market. Now, you can imagine what reaction that uh, elicited from the stock market and from uh, uh, Wall Street. Because until now, Polaroid had a monopoly. For every film that was sold, $1 went to Kodak. Okay? So it was a symbiotic relationship. It suited both of them. And now suddenly, they had managed to alienate the biggest stakeholder in their production network. Kodak started investing into developing its own film and camera system. Immediately uh, when they announced this, Polaroid stock went into free fall. Okay. Because suddenly they had the biggest company in uh, the industry as a competitor, whereas until now they had a monopoly. Can I ask, um, just to go back a little, you say they could have renegotiated or should have renegotiated the contract with Kodak and, between Kodak and Polaroid. How could they have done that and what should they have done? Well, um, Kodak, of course, 
had um, had a very strong position, bargaining position. Um, why? Because they didn't really know whether Polaroid could even pull it off, right? because they had no uh, experience in manufacturing negatives. Um, however, now they were basically going and investing in a completely different line of business. I shouldn't say line of business, but a different product, which they had not been uh, gearing up for. So it was going to be difficult for them. And Polaroid was al already years ahead you know, of them. And indeed, later on, we saw that Polaroid, uh, Kodak was not able to develop the um, instant camera and film system without encroaching on Polaroid's patterns. And that resulted in the biggest legal liability uh, case in US history. And Kodak had to pull its cameras from the market and award and give Polaroid about $900 million at the time. But by then, the damage had been done. So do you think in terms of that point uh, where things could have gone right, Polaroid could have used its leverage, the fact that it had this information that Kodak didn't, to negotiate a contract with them by which Kodak would be more open and share its knowledge with Polaroid and together they would jointly create this new product. Yes, I mean, although you could argue that Kodak uh, did not give them the choice of actually renegotiating this. And of course, this is very much um, part and parcel of all relationships in the high-tech industries because you are working with companies as your partners, but there's also tension. And where everything seems calm and quiet, the, it, the interfaces are usually pregnant with tensions. Because at any time, somebody can choose to break off that relationship and all that you have invested in that relationship may actually be compromised. So this is not unique to Polaroid and Kodak. This is very much part of all uh, such. Did Polaroid see it coming or was it a complete shock to them? Polaroid did not see it coming. Um, they, of course, took it very boldly. They said, okay, so Kodak thinks that they can come into the market and you know, beat us at our game. We will show them. And a very interesting uh, consequence of this uh, reaction from Polaroid was that now they knew that Kodak had immense resources at its disposal and they could uh, conceivably uh, catch up with them. So they tried to make their uh, technology even more complex than it needed to be. And they decided to use processes which they would not have otherwise. And uh, so they were unnecessarily complicating their technology simply to keep their lead over Kodak intact. And can you talk about there was another issue that you discuss is the fact that they took on the manufacturing of a very new type of battery. Can you explain why they did that and also what the impact of that right. was? So as I mentioned, they decided to put the battery in the film itself. So that battery had to be wafer thin and it had to produce a certain uh, amount of charge. And that kind of battery did not exist. So once again, you know, um, following the textbook, they went to the most advanced battery manufacturer, uh, which was ESB, later called Excite in, uh, in the US. And they asked them, showed them the specifications. Here, there was slightly less uncertainty, level of uncertainty uh, involved because they could have the specs. They showed it to Exide, um, and who decided to take on the challenge. 
and they set up a dedicated battery manufacturing facility for this type of battery. Now, why were they doing it? They were doing it because, as I mentioned uh, earlier, Polaroid had this immense reputation in, uh, in, in the industrial uh, world at the time. And uh, so these guys were convinced that if Polaroid is behind it, they, they will, in all likelihood, pull it off. And so they decided to invest a lot of uh, money into this relationship. Now, it was completely outsourced. The battery was outsourced. Now, that becomes problematic because when you're trying to develop a completely new type of system and you have outsourced half of it, if there are problems later on, there are problems with diagnosing the problems as well. Okay. So, in the, and that is what happened in this case because they noticed that the pictures that were coming out on these, uh, the new film had a blue tinge on it as if they had been taken on a cold ski slope. Now, they went to Excite and they said there is something wrong with the battery because it's interacting with the film. They said, no, the problem lies with the film. Now, of course, you know, we have modularized the thing. We have divided knowledge on two sides. And there was nobody who knew both film and battery, which was the kind of combination that was required to diagnose the problem accurately. In this situation, Polaroid sent many of its engineers over to Exide to work with the Exide engineers and figure out what the actual problem was. They figured out the problem. Indeed, the battery was giving off fumes and which was interacting with the film. But how do you solve the problem. Now, increasingly, as time, of course, was a crucial variable here, because time is passing, there is pressure from Kodak, there is pressure from Wall Street, and these guys are increasingly, Excite is increasingly um, in, in, less inclined to actually continue investing resources into this product, which does not seem to be doing well on other fronts. So they decided to pull the plug on this, and Polaroid had to bring battery manufacturing in-house as well. Once they brought it in-house, of course, that division of knowledge problem disappeared and Polaroid was able to fix uh, the problem or the interaction problem between the battery and the film. But once again, at huge cost, Polaroid uh, was backed into making batteries, as its president Bill McCoon put it later. And um, they had never meant to be a battery manufacturer. Now they were the largest battery manufacturer in the U.S., in summary, the, these kinds of decisions that led to the impacts that you talk about, what effect did that have on the company? Because then it was fairly devastating. Yes. Um, Polaroid started out as a design shop, something rather like Apple right now, and which basically thrived on the basis of its creativity. Most of the manufacturing had been outsourced. By the end of this episode, SX-70, which, you know, mind you, was their crowning glory, this was the ultimate innovation that the company had ever produced or the world had, uh, had seen. By the end of it, they had become a fully-fledged manufacturing company. They were the biggest battery manufacturer in the U.S. They were also making uh, the uh, film and plus a lot of other components that they had to find suppliers to because there was almost a domino effect. When one relationship that your company does not have, a high-profile relationship does not work out, then other suppliers also become very wary. 
And Corning glass, for example, used to make lenses, you know, pulled out and they said, you know, this is because uh, the product is not really doing as well as uh, it was supposed to and so on. So Polaroid lost out. Its, its stock price completely fell because it had managed to alienate Kodak, um, which was with whom it had a symbiotic relationship, but not anymore. Now it was its major competitor. And uh, it, it paid a huge cost. Edwin Land, who had been the visionary uh, leader uh, who had managed Polaroid for decades, founded and uh, managed Polaroid for decades, he was asked to resign uh, by the board. So this small technical decisions that were taken in the course of uh, coming up with this innovation um, had a huge toll. And eventually they filed for Chapter 11 eventually 2001. They, I mean, you could argue that, you know, there were also other technologies that they invested in that um, they shouldn't have. For example, Polar Vision when digital technology was coming in and, uh, and so on. But um, nevertheless, this was one of the major causes for their decline, which is kind of ironic because technologically it was their biggest success. And, but they paid an organizational price in the course of this technological uh, achievement. And in your view, have, uh, have companies understood the dangers of this kind of thing? I mean, obviously, if you've created a new innovation, the natural uh, tendency or inclination is to move ahead with it. It's, uh, it's, it's obviously going to be groundbreaking and so on. Um, but you've shown the companies must investigate and explore the Im implications of making technical decisions, normally left to engineers, but in your view, other people should be involved in looking at this. That's right. So if there is a moral of the story here, it is that technical decisions are too important to be left to engineers. Because engineers have a good sound knowledge of the technological consequences of a particular decision, but do not um, usually do not foresee um, the organizational consequences of such technical decisions. So in this case, for example, we notice that for every technical decision that was taken, that we are going to, for example, have an integral film where polar uh, the positive and negative are going to be together was basically a technical decision. We are going to have a new type of battery was basically a technical decision, but it had organizational and social analogs. And uh, so these are things that... Um, it, it, you know, should not be left to engineers. On the other hand, it is important for CEOs and top management of high-tech companies to actually understand the technology that they are dealing with quite well. And this is something that they sometimes struggle at. Why, why do you think that is? Well, because of the technicality of, uh, let's say, you know, somebody has a social science background, they get an MBA, uh, they move up quickly in uh, the hierarchy in a particular high-tech organization, it does not mean that they will have acquired a sound knowledge of the technology and the various interfaces um, and why they are so. And uh, what is the nature of, the exact nature of the equilibrium that a particular technology or a particular technological product represents. And if they change one component or the place of one component, how is it going to change the entire architecture, not only the technical, but also the, of the production network? So do you think they should have some kind of a monitoring or, or some kind of a committee approach to looking at these kinds of decisions? So even if you are not an expert at the very top of the organization, you get the right kind of advice? 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, they must be involved in all these um, uh, meetings, for example, wherever the product architecture is discussed. Now, Polaroid is an extreme example. It is an example of a radical innovation in which a number of things were radically changed, which meant not only changes within a particular module, but also across modules. Uh, so there were both architectural and modular changes involved. Now, simply architectural changes, and other people have shown this, simply architectural uh, changes can also wreak havoc uh, in similar ways. Simply by shifting the position of a particular component, you can completely disable an organization simply because there are a lot of routines that are developed around um, you know, uh, product architectures and there are various relation, external relationships that are built around particular product architecture. So a product basically represents a compromise. It's a truce between a number of different players. To disturb that truce could lead to unpredictable consequences. Who should be responsible? I know you say obviously the CEO needs to consider the implications of such decisions, but is there a, is there a director or a group of uh, senior managers you would say should be looking and making sure that some of these decisions are not uh, submerged, that they're always um, at the top of mind when, when coming up against um, a big change? Well, in the case of Polaroid, for example, it was essentially led by their hugely charismatic CEO, Edwin Land, who was very much a techie. He had a number of patents second only to Thomas Edison's in, in the US. And he was on the president's scientific advisory council, you name it. So enormous credibility and legitimacy behind that person. Whenever um, his top management, whether they are you know, vice president of marketing or they are vice president you know, or the COO, for example, would raise some sort of an issue that would um, impede the progress of this you know, brilliant new innovation, they would he would usually cut them out of this discussion and proceed, which is very typical of such visionary uh, CEOs. This is a huge strength for them that they can actually see you know, how brilliant this thing could be in the future, but also that they do not have enough discussion on the consequences um, that this may lead to. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Munir, for a fascinating insight into Polaroid. It's a pleasure. Thank you.